This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. My co-host Tim Stenovic is off this week. Well, it was another infrastructure week where something actually got done. It was also a week of mixed markets, records for some equity indexes, and a consistent flurry of stories on companies that are figuring out what work looks like in the fall. And for a growing number, got to say, it means a delay in getting back to the office. We'll talk more about how work is shifting because of the pandemic. We'll do that in our second hour. Coming up, though, this hour, we've got the CEO of TrueLeave on more Americans than ever being able to access Canada. Also, an up-close look at real estate with the co-founder of Romer DeBoss. They're based in New York. They'll talk about why first-time homebuyers are feeling the squeeze as they wade into a red-hot housing market. Plus, the CEO of Freight Farms on advancements in agricultural technology that are helping farmers deal with increasingly extreme climates. All of that to come, we begin with a story from Business Week about why Silicon Valley's many Asian Americans still feel like a minority. I caught up with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg venture capital reporter Priya Anand. So we've known for a while that Silicon Valley is not great with diversity and you would assume these companies, you know, um, companies crop up every day here. These, a lot of these companies are, are not that many decades old. You would assume that they weren't saddled with some of the historical issues that other institutions that have been around for maybe hundreds of years might be saddled with. But one one key thing that we realized was, you know, in the demographic reports that these companies put out, Alphabet, Google's parent company, Facebook, et cetera, one bright spot always appears to be that Asians account for almost as much of the company as white folks and sometimes more of the population at a company in the U.S., at least. Facebook, for example, Asian people outnumber their white peers um, ever so slightly in the U.S., And so we looked at that a little deeper and we realized, you know, there is a gap as you move up the ranks at tech companies and the data shows this. Um, There are far fewer Asian folks in leadership compared to their overall representation at the company. Um, So we noticed that gap and we thought, you know, what is behind that gap? Let's start asking the questions and talking to people. Yeah. And, you know, Joel, I think it is a surprise. You know, we do often cover how tech companies or we talk with tech company executives, they love to say we've got a lot of diversity and inclusion. And yes, sometimes that is the case, but it's not such a clear picture. It's a lot more complicated. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that is was really the thrust of the story. And, and what Priya did, um, I think, re- remarkably well is like there's the data side of the story, but then there's the, the human one. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to actually like take a moment. Like these are people who haven't often spoken on the record about sort of the the environment that the work environment that they're in and and there were several themes that um uh stuck out i think in the reporting and and Priya, what, why don't you just talk to us about what some of those were and and what people felt so one of the things that is most frustrating for asians in the tech industry is that the racism against them is barely acknowledged there's this idea I spoke with someone yesterday who said, thank you for writing this story because there's been this idea that we shouldn't talk about this because at least we're well represented at these companies. But there are a a lot of challenges that come along the way as you're progressing at a tech company. We spoke with folks who are fairly young in their 20s as an intern, um, a woman who moved to San Francisco 
for an internship was told, you know, um, white men here will love to date you. And so for women in the tech industry, there's this double whammy, right, of receiving the gendered feedback and also this sort of feedback that, that fetishizes Asian women. The same woman has been told by a manager or by a colleague that, um, you know, you only have succeeded here because someone in leadership has an Asian fetish. And this is someone in their 20s. And this person, you know, has also been told that they lack executive presence, which for someone in their 20s, you know, is this vague kind of coded feedback on what does that even mean? You've never managed anyone in the first place. Um, and, and when you combine all those things together, it's quite a discouraging outlook. And then when folks reach middle management stage, this vague feedback continues, right, related to executive presence. And also people are often told, you know, you don't fit the profile of what we're looking for in this role. And they look at their credentials. They look at um, their successes that they've had in their career. They look at their peers. And sometimes the only difference is they're an Asian-American compared to a lot of their white peers. And they're left wondering whether this vague feedback had something to do with their performance or their credentials, or is it about their identity? There is one person that I think um, is more identifiable than others, which is Ellen Powell. And, you know, that she became famous for the case that she lost in 2015. But it also, um, you know, it speaks to sort of what she was able to accomplish and the legacy, her legacy a little bit. So what did you learn from talking with Ellen Powell? Well, one thing I wanted to chat with Ellen Powell about in particular was when she was interim CEO of Reddit. Firstly, why was it interim, right? Um, did, did the board coming in decide that she wouldn't be staying on forever and, and why was that? And she says she looks back and, and wonders the same thing, why she had that tacked onto her title and she let it go at the time. Um, but one of the things that struck me most is looking back on her career, while she was running Reddit, there were all these racist memes that users would post calling her Chairman Mao or Chairman Pao after, you know, Mao style memes. Um, and, and that just seemed really striking, right, to rebel against the changes she was making with not just any kind of meme, but these, race, like, frankly, very racist memes um, calling her Chairman Pao. So that, that was something that I think if that happened now, um, perhaps we'd look at even more than it was covered in the past. That was Priya Nan, Bloomberg Venture Capital reporter and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, True Leave CEO Kim Rivers is back, stopping by to talk about earnings and an increasingly smoking marijuana market in the United States. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. One of the industries we got to check on this week is the cannabis industry, thanks to earnings from True Leaf Cannabis. Second quarter revenue at the company beating estimates up 78% year over year. Profits also a beat. And for more, we checked in with Kim Rivers. She's chairman, president, and CEO of Quincy, Florida-based True Leaf Cannabis. Things are going great. We um, continue to see, um, you know, the, the continuation of, of cannabis as really this great American growth story. Um, you know, even in the face of right and or the lack thereof, I guess, of a federal a federal legalization movement, um, it continues to be really a state by state story. And, and this quarter was no different with 
uh, strong demand across all the markets that we operate in and, and really a continued positive outlook in the industry. Well, talk to me about the cannabis regulatory environment. I mean, this is something we have had multiple conversations with many individuals in the industry, and I keep I think we keep thinking we're going to get closer and closer to some kind of feb- feb- federal rulings on it and fe- federal oversight, and yet here we are. What are the indications? What kind of guidance are you getting from uh, policymakers in D.C.? Yeah, you know, I think that um, it's, you know, it's fascinating in that we came from an environment under the previous administration where we really couldn't get any traction in the Senate at all, mm-hmm. right? And um, we couldn't get um, get anything to be to, to, to progress or, or make it at all to the, to the floor. Now we're in kind of the opposite in the opposite environment where um, there's a lot of interest and a lot of um, a lot of willingness to get something done. And here we have this proposal that is um, so robust um, that that perhaps it's um, it may be, and, and this remains to be seen, of course. And I'm talking about um, you know Senator Schumer's bill. Right. It, it includes that we could ever want to address, right, with respect to cannabis reform. And, you know, I think that um, the answer likely lies somewhere in the middle and in, in that this is a process at the federal level, like it is with any large policy uh, policy matter. So I don't, uh, cannabis is no different. And we've swung the pendulum kind of from one end to the other. And, and I hope that um, at the very least, I hope that we can get at least some piece of substantive policy uh, legislation passed out of this Congress. I think it would be an absolute shame if, if we were to, or if they were to allow Congress to adjoin without um, something significant um, passing at, at, at the federal level. You know, we know that the votes are there for state banking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's abundantly clear, right? And um, But, you know, uh, this Senate's position is that that's, that's simply, you know, at this point in time, not enough as a standalone piece of legislation. And so uh, from, our, from our standpoint, um, we would be ecstatic with safe banking. We would be even more ecstatic if it was safe banking plus some significant element of, of social justice um, or in, in or uh, criminal justice reform. Right. Um, but that it needs to be something. Right. Because so, still uh, on a federal level, it's illegal. Well, what guidance do you have on that? And how much did COVID derail uh, the movement forward when it comes to uh, either a safe banking act or, you know, ending cannabis prohibition? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, and, and rightly so, COVID is, is top of mind for all of us um, in our personal lives, in our business lives, and, and of course, for, for policymakers as well. And, and that's understandable and, and appropriate. Um, that being said, um, you know, it, it was, I don't think, ever the plane, the, the cannabis policymaking is on the schedule that I, I think that many of us thought that it would be on in that, you know, uh, Senator Schumer introduced his, his proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, they went into into recess. I believe that it will be revisited in in September. Um, At that point, you know, towards the back half of the year, I think there's going to be additional discussion around it. And we'll decide whether or not, you know, that's the path if there's enough if there's enough momentum there in terms of a a heavier lift or if instead um, it should be paired back into something um, that may be more palatable for a bipartisan for a bipartisan, um, you know, the ability to get it passed on from on a on a bipartisan basis, which, of course, we would like to see as well, because the reality is, is that when you look at the states and you look at what's happening at the state level, you know, we just want a license in Georgia for getting operational there. You look at what happened last November with states like Mississippi passing a medical a medical um, initiative, you know, Arizona going recreational. I mean, at the state level, things are not slowing down. And as a matter of fact, they're accelerating. So, you know, I think it's important for folks to realize that the growth of the industry is not tied to what happens in D.C., um, really at, at, at all. Um, it makes it more difficult from a, I, we just paid $80 million in taxes, for example, under 280E. <laughs> um, but, you know, 
handicaps these businesses, but it isn't slowing down demand. Hey, Kim, so talk to us about some of the strategies you guys have been working on. You have been making some acquisitions. You've been expanding uh, where you are operational, and that includes Massachusetts, also West Virginia. So give us a little bit more insight into uh, how growth has been going. Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we started in Florida and um, we were in our, the, uh, the market leader, uh, you know, significant market leader in Florida. We have about 20% of the, of the stores and have approximately over 45% of the market here. And that was purposeful and that we really wanted to in- ensure a couple things. One, that we could actually scale a cannabis company uh, in a market that allowed us to do so. And, and two, we wanted to, to get a very solid financial footing prior to expanding into other markets. And so Trulieve has um, certainly a reputation of being the most profitable cannabis business in the U.S. Um, and that has allowed us to fuel our growth um, internally and, and really kind of insulated us from the volatility of the capital markets over time. And so, however, um, that being said, we started five years ago, um, really about 18 months ago, we made a strategic decision to begin expanding um, in a hub-and-spoke model across the U.S. And uh, we did that first um, by expanding into the Northeast. As you mentioned, we have operations in Massachusetts. We also have operations in Pennsylvania. Recently made another acquisition there, as well as um, as well as West Virginia and Connecticut. Uh, and then um, we we decided that it was time for us to really take a, a hard look at where we wanted to go from there and which other uh, markets were, were our next moves and whether or not we wanted to make a, a bigger a bigger move or continue this um, this sort of, you know, state by state or, or you know, company by company strategy. And, and at that point, we decided to uh, kind of go big, if you will, and um, entered into a deal with Harvest um, mm-hmm. Health and Recreation. Harvest is the largest player in Arizona. Uh, they also have significant presence in uh, Pennsylvania and also operations in Florida. Combined, uh, we will be by far the largest cannabis company in the U.S. Um, by any available metric. Um, this quarter, on a combined basis, had we closed the deal, so the Harvest shareholders voted on the transaction, and uh, we're looking to close here uh, soon. And if we if we were combined today, we would have you know top line 317.6 million in revenue, 122.9 million in in EBITDA. We'd be in 11 states, have 140 stores, and over 3 million square feet of grow. That growth footprint is about 50% larger than any competitor, and the number of stores is, is north of 30%. So um, we will be the dominant player in the in the space. That was True Leaf CEO Kim Rivers. Check out that full conversation. You can find it at Bloomberg.com. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, from growing and selling cannabis to farming in freight containers. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So when I got this pitch, uh, I thought our audience, our Bloomberg audience might be interested. It's a company that's on a mission to create a global infrastructure for local access to food. So far, they've spread across 34 countries, 49 U.S. states and territories, and have created more than 600 freight farmers all over the past eight years. Here with what they are doing and how climate change is definitely playing a role in all of this as well is Rick Venzura. He's CEO of Freight Farms. Rick, tell us a little bit about exactly what you guys have been doing over the past almost 10 years here. I think it's actually might be even longer than 10 years. Right, right. Yeah, our, our co-founders, John Friedman and Brad McNamara, 
came together in 2010 to try and address um, uh, urban access to food and food deserts with rooftop gardens, but they realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a very economical or, or practical approach to um, to scaling. So in, in 2013, they they uh, founded Freight Farms, and, and John came up with this crazy idea to to grow produce inside a, a used shipping container because he, he saw that there were uh, many of them around and that if you put LED lights and the right environmentals in it and, and nutrients that you could grow produce. And and since then, we've gone through 10 generations of farms and, and uh, in 2019 um, realized that trying to use, uh, use shipping containers really wasn't optimized for growing. So developed a lot of patents around um, optimizing growth and customized shipping containers. So we launched the greenery in 2019, and we've gone through several evolutions of that to come to the uh, greenery S. And in a nutshell, it allows you to grow about two and a half acres of produce in um, an 8 by 40 foot shipping container, and you can do it with um, 95% less water than traditional agriculture, um, no soil. It uh, dramatically cuts transportation miles. Uh, 95% of the lettuce in the U.S. comes from fields in Salinas, California. So here on the East Coast, that's having to spend several days and travel thousands of miles to get to uh, shelves and grocery stores on the East Coast, whereas you can grow in our shipping containers um, anywhere in virtually any climate, any time. So we can put those containers right where there's need and, and deliver, you know, hyper-local, sustainable, uh, fresh produce um, anywhere where you have access to power and water. So um, that's it. And based on that, we're now in, in 49 states and, and our 34th country. So um, it's been it's been uh, just a, a yeah. great journey and, and uh, great to do something that's, that's um, scalable and, and good for folks around the world. Talk to me about the financial dynamics of what you are doing, um, the cost equation of all of this and how that works. Um, our farms cost $139,000, which um, pretty low cost of access for commercial farming, particularly given that it, it, mm-hmm. it takes uh, virtually no footprint. And on that investment, you can get a payback in um, about two years. Again, thanks to the advances in the technology, you can you can grow that two and a half acres worth of crops. And um, you know, I've I've been involved in evolving technology yeah. segments before in my life. Where early stage, it looks like how is this ever going to make sense? And then it gets to the point where it kind of makes sense, and then a few years later, it uh, leaves leaves the alternatives in the dust. So I think not just for us, but for the industry in general, you're seeing that same sort of evolution. I mentioned climate change in the lead up to this, and uh, we certainly were talking, everybody was about the latest report from the UN and talking about um, the impact that certainly humans are having on our climate. Food is one of those things, we talk about it, but I don't think we realize how dangerous a situation we could be getting into because of climate change and making it much more difficult to grow the food that the world needs. How do you think about climate change and what you what you folks are doing? Absolutely critical issue with 70% of, of the world's freshwater resources go toward agriculture. We've lost about a third of the arable land on earth over the last 40 years for a a variety of reasons, including climate change, and and you know we've all read about 
a lot of the devastating things that are happening with fresh water levels and yeah. um, just climate conditions generally to grow around the world. So, you know, having a solution that doesn't rely on soil, that um, takes mineral right. water and can grow in an extreme climate is really important. And, and you know, we're going to have to preserve what we can. The, you know, the latest reports, as you right. referenced, have said we're now at the point where um, you can't turn back the clock, but right. we can at least protect what we have, and we need to do that. That's Rick Van Zura. He's the CEO of Freight Farms. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Straight ahead, what really is going on in residential and commercial real estate? One hint, not so great to be a first-time home buyer. We'll get an update from the co-founder of the boutique real estate law firm, Romer DeBoss. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right, so real estate is something we like to talk about a lot, and we do it and cover it a lot here at Bloomberg. And there are a few stories. Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust uh, acquiring WPT Industrial Real Estate Investment Trust. That was a cash deal valued at $3.1 billion, included debt. You've also had the Biden administration urging state and local governments to move quickly to distribute billions of dollars provided by Congress to help struggling renters and landlords. So there is a lot always going on when it comes to real estate. So someone who's got a front row seat to it all, Pierre DeBoss. He is co-founder, managing partner of Romer DeBoss. It is the boutique real estate law firm. It's based in New York City in Midtown Manhattan. Pierre, good to have you back. How are you? Carol, great to hear from you. Thanks for having me back on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. How are things going? And I think the last time we talked was maybe, I think, back in November. Um, tell me how the world is right now from your perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a loaded question, but, know. Uh, you know, luckily it seems that, you know, we, we've been in an, up, in, in an upper progression, and I think that everybody in town, you know, is sitting here saying, uh, you know, is the Delta variant going to take us a step back? And, you know, praying that we don't go back to the, you know, shutdowns and, you know, level of protocols that we're having, you know, several, probably last we spoke in November. Um, ironically enough, you know, even with saying that, uh, our real estate market, though, is at, at record highs. I mean, I'm looking, you know, I'm a real estate lawyer in, in Manhattan, and mm-hmm. I look at our Manhattan market and also the nation's housing market, and they're both the most active and busiest I've ever seen in my entire career, which is remarkable given, you know, how we started off this conversation with worrying about what's going on in the world and and taking a step back. Is it still so much people running from cities? Like, how do you explain the activity right now? You know, it's funny because a a while back, it was no secret that a lot of people, there's somewhat of an exodus of people from New York City, mainly renters who said, you know, if Mm -hmm. I can be remote and virtual, why not live in a lower cost living state, have have a house, have more space, work from home and I will find a job that's either fully virtual or, you know, predominantly virtual. And that was exactly, that was the catalyst for what started driving this, you know, robust housing market that we're in. But then, you know, when we're talking present day, that statement's kind of counterintuitive to the fact that New York City real estate's doing exceptionally well. Hmm. So what is, you know, what is driving the housing market? Because it's not the exodus of people from cities. People, people are flooding back to Manhattan right now. I mean, Mm -hmm. our... Really? You're seeing strong trends back. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the residential, the co-op condo townhouse market in New York City is the most active I've ever seen it. And and it's been that way since the beginning of this year. So uh, you can't even attribute it to pent-up demand from 2020. I mean, this is yeah. not pent-up well, demand. This is a new market. P- well, that's interesting, Pierre, because is it 
is it because people have money to put to work? I mean, the pandemic was this really odd thing where some people, a lot of people, if you were in the markets and so on and so forth, you ultimately, you know, benefited. I hate to use those words, but, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of wealth creation. We talk about it all the time here at Bloomberg. And there was there a lot of wealth creation that people are now putting to work in terms of real estate investments. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, 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 you're spot on. You know, when you look at the, when you reference the stock market, I think at the depths of March of 2020, the S&P had dipped down to as low as 2300. Right. So whoever's in the market made a substantial amount of money in the last year and a half. Um, I read a great stat uh, a month or two ago that the percentage of billionaires in the world in 2020, I think, increases roughly 28%, somewhere in the 20s, right. in one year in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, that's a, that's a staggering statistic. And right. that is translating to a lot of our demand for New York City real estate, because on the high-end side, which is where we're seeing the most activity, or record levels of activity, that's where the steepest discounts are in the, in the residential market in Manhattan. And people who had obviously made a lot of money in the last year or two are taking advantage of buying at this discount, knowing that it's, uh, the city will undoubtedly come back. It just, you know, they're okay riding out a couple years. But even to that, you know, I'm seeing now in the last couple months, the amount of renters coming back has mm-hmm. skyrocketed as well. So, you know, and that's not driven by, you know, the high-end, uh, you know, purchaser. That's really driven by people coming back, anticipating living here and working here again. Yeah, I've seen a lot of fluid just among, you know, or, or movement, I should say, among colleagues who, and some buying, but some also renting. And I said to them, so did you get a deal? And they're like, yeah, maybe they took off $100. Like, not really a deal anymore. It's not like it was six, seven, eight months ago. No, the rental market has definitely rebounded significantly. Uh, a year ago, I mean, you could have named your price in whatever concession you want. But again, I mean, you know, being based here, you walk around New York City, for the people who haven't been here in a couple of years, it doesn't look like it did in you know, 2019 and before, right. but it looks night and day than what it did last summer at this time. So I have a couple of things I wanted to pick your brain about, Pierre. First of all, first-time home buyers, are they being completely squeezed out of the market? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point to bring up. Um, and the, the answer is yes. Um, at the moment, you know, the last week or, uh, or earlier in July, I should say, I'm sorry, the housing market hit another record level in terms of pricing. And what we're seeing in the marketplace is that roughly 25% of all purchases that have taken place this summer have been cash purchases. Wow. So that is, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I don't recall ever seeing a, a, such a significant portion of all deals uh, being on a cash basis. And, you know, majority of first-time home buyers, you know, I believe the average price was $353,000. They're, they're not buying that in cash. You know, mm-hmm. they're putting down 5%, 10% maximum and getting a mortgage. And the problem they're encountering is that sellers in, you know, markets that are very, very hot right now are not consenting, consenting to mortgage contingencies. And, you know, banks are becoming, have become more conservative in their lending, requiring higher, sum, higher down payment sums. Mm-hmm. So the net effect is that first-time home buyers and the millennial generation are being, you know, pushed out of the market in most parts of the country at the moment. You know, it's interesting you say that about banks, too. I mean, because we know money is so cheap right now, right? And we've talked so much about mortgage rates and refinancing. But the banks are being pretty difficult, whether it's on a refinancing or even a first-time mortgage. They continue to be so. You're seeing evidence of that. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, that's good for us because mm-hmm. our last housing market boom of, you know, 2005 to 2008 was driven by reckless lending standards and subprime lending. 
And when, you know, many people speculate, are we sitting here in a housing bubble? When you take into account the higher down payment sums that are taking place all over, the amount of cash deals and banks having more stringent, you know, underwriting regulations and standards, you know, that would lead you to believe that we're not in a housing bubble because it's not, it's this market's not fabricated by something that wasn't real right. in the sense of subprime lending where, you know, banks were just giving a mortgage to anybody, anybody in town with no income or verification or anything. So you don't see sloppy deals being done? I know from my perspective, I, I, I really don't. Um, okay. You know, we have a majority of our clients are in the New York City area, but, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've represented a number of people who've gone to other parts of the country and... I'm, I'm not hearing of any, you know, any sloppy lending or transactions at all. When you look around the country or look around the world, but country specifically, we've talked about Austin being popular and some of these secondary and tertiary markets. Where do you see a lot of people going and wanting to buy? You know, Florida has obviously been a huge beneficiary of everything mm-hmm. that's going on, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, one, given the, how, you know, the weather down there, the COVID pandemic, and not to, you know, go into the political conversation what they're doing down there, but I don't think the risk was as high there as it was in densely populated cities that, you know, it's known that the virus wasn't as contagious in warmer weather and outdoors. Um, And then also you're looking at it from the perspective of taxes and cost of living, you know, with no state or city income tax in Florida and a lower cost of living. I think that Florida has probably been the biggest beneficiary of this whole pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. If I recall correctly, I think Florida had the highest highest number of new residents move there in, in 2020. Right. Florida, I think Texas was number two. I think you, yeah, because I know we've talked a lot about increasingly the financial community, you know, moving down there, setting up shop, but there does seem to be um, a fairly big migration down there, as you, as you pointed out. Hey, listen, just got about 45, 50 seconds left here. There are so many things we talked about, trends and things being changed because of the pandemic. Is there any trend because of the pandemic that you think definitely stays with us longer term? Just quickly. Uh, you know, I think that the hybrid structure of remote work and coming into office a few days a week is here to stay. Um, mm. Some of the major investment banks are trying to, you know, force people to come back into the office. And you're seeing that's being pushed back by a majority of major corporations um, due to the Delta variant. And I think it's inevitable that, you know, a hybrid model will be here to stay. And that's going to impact how our, you know, we operate as a society tremendously over the next, you know, several years. Hey, quick follow. So does that mean corporations, I mean, they are going to cut back on their commercial real estate needs, just got about 20 seconds. Yeah, I think that, you know, to what extent they're going to cut back is the question, because even if you're in a hybrid policy, you still need space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, are you going to go on a rotation in terms of offices or are you going to look at it that people are just as productive and revenues, you know, just as good, if not better? I don't need to really downsize my real estate holdings that much. That's the million-dollar question over the next couple of years. That's Pierre DeBoss. He is co-founder and managing partner of Romer DeBoss. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. Ahead in our next hour, with the debate over vaccine mandates intensifying across the country, restaurants are now back at the center of America's culture war. How hostesses, waiters, and bartenders and owners will need to play bouncer 
to the unvaccinated. Plus, we go inside the C-suite at a pair of publicly traded companies in two very different sectors. We'll talk with the chief human resources officer at Carlyle Group, Bruce Larson. He'll tell us how the firm is putting its money where its mouth is when it comes to employee wellness. Plus, Jennifer Weber, she holds the same title over at Archer Daniels Midland. She'll talk about the future of work at a company that is heavily dependent on in-person labor and how the company is trying to close the gap between blue and white-collar workers. More Bloomberg Business Week is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. My co-host Tim Stenovic is off this week. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, it is definitely the dog days of summer, pretty hot week this week. And yet we are hearing a lot from companies that are weighing in on what work looks like as students get back to school and workers come back to the office. With that in mind, we took a deep dive into work in a post-pandemic world and one that is still grappling with rising virus cases and hospitalizations again because of the Delta variant. Getting workers back to the office, not so easy. With that in in mind, how would you like to get an extra week off this week, as well as a wellness stipend, and even more? That's exactly what's going on at one of the private equity giants. We'll fill you in. Plus, not every worker we know can work from home. That's something Archer Daniels Midland knows about big time, as about half of its 44,000 global employees work in the company's manufacturing facilities. So how are they adapting in a post-pandemic world? And on the menu at restaurants, vaccine bouncers. And that is where we begin this hour, with a Business Week story featured online and on the Bloomberg Terminal this week about how restaurants and restaurant owners continue to pivot in our pandemic and post-pandemic worlds. And that has meant becoming creative, innovative, changing menus, and sometimes being cop. We got that story from Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News investigative reporter Polly Mossens. Well, one of the biggest things that we heard was just surprise. Restaurants feel not entirely prepared to deal with this, but they're also willing to roll with the punches. They were certainly not resistant to the idea. They just are going to need a little bit of time to acclimate because not only are they going to have to check all of their diners, they're also going to have to check all of their staff because the policy uh, applies to their employees as well as to the diners. These owners are really having to police who's in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's like checking your IDs when you were 17 or 18. This is what they're doing, Polly. Yeah, absolutely. This is like the ultimate ID check, right? <laughs> you'll have to show your ID and then you'll have to show your vaccine card. And just like they do with the IDs, they're going to have to be on the lookout for fakes when it comes to the vaccine cards. Talk to us about the Excelsior Pass and sort of like what the people you talk to, how do they, how do they feel about um, it in practice? So the good thing about the Excelsior Pass is that it is a pretty thorough app. However, in practice, it is possible to pass a phone in between two diners. You know, two folks that might be going out to dinner together, they, in one case, we actually heard that uh, the hostess and the owner of the restaurant, she caught them passing the app between them. So while the app is certainly thorough, it certainly seems to work well, you do run the risk of people just passing the phone between the two of them in order to circumvent that vaccination mandate. You talk about for someone, it might be an Asian restaurant. I mean, it's not just, you know, policing when it comes to vaccine, but there's also other 
factors at play that makes it even more difficult for restaurant owners. Absolutely. It is just one more hurdle that they are going to have to deal with. And they've had 18 months of hurdles. Mm. And some restaurants, they're going to be able to afford to offload this responsibility to security guards. But that's not something that's feasible for all restaurants. I love there's a quote from, is it Scott Gerber that's in this story? And it says, we've dealt with intoxicated people, irrational people. Uh, And uh, he says, our people are skilled at de-escalating problems. I mean, yes, that's so true. But it it does feel like this takes it, you know, to a whole other level. I think that this definitely does take it to a whole different level. And, you know, we have seen, unfortunately, in the past, people do get very violent and very upset with folks who are working the door. That's something that service workers at grocery stores and that retailers dealt with a lot in the early days of the pandemic. You know, in two instances, security guards were unfortunately even killed over mask mandates that they were attempting to enforce. I do think about how restaurants are doing additional training, right? We did it after the Me Too movement. And as, you know, certainly after George Floyd, companies adapting in general to what's happening in uh, our world. And that's the same thing for restaurant owners, right? That you know, Polly, we have to see them maybe instituting new training for their workers so that they know how to handle these situations. They've got the tools to figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure they'll also be looking to law enforcement in the most extreme of situations. And law enforcement has had to do their own set of training as, as they navigate this new and unusual world that we're living in. Are people thinking that but in the restaurant groups in particular, are people craving to be in restaurants right now still? Or are they? Is it more of like a uh, taking a backseat um, to where we were, kind of at the beginning of of the pandemic? You know, I think that people are still craving it. I definitely think that there will still be a market for it because it's important to understand that in New York City, we actually have a phenomenally high vaccination rate. New York is doing really well in vaccination, and I think that the mayor's office and restaurateurs are hopeful that this will take it to the next level of vaccination rate. So I definitely think that there is still a big market and a big desire to be out and about. And, you know, this policy uh, may encourage some people who have been on the fence about vaccination to ultimately get vaccinated. Well, and, you know, I also do wonder, we've talked about this a lot, Polly, about, you know, private sector, public sector working together. And and (laughs) it does feel like restaurants have to be a little bit on pins and needles as new mandates come down from officials about how to do things. And then they've got, they're left kind of figuring it all out. Uh, And I do wonder if there'll be more collaboration to kind of help restaurants through this, especially when it's stricter policy. I think that's the biggest thing that we heard both from the security guard companies and from the restaurateurs is just, we need more time. We need to figure out how this is going to work. You know, they, they do need to, to get acclimated to this new policy. And I think that there's issues that they haven't even thought of yet. That they will deal with when the time comes, when people are ultimately showing up at their doors that have to prove that they're vaccinated. That's Bloomberg News investigative reporter Polly Mossens and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Find more at businessweek.com. Coming up, wouldn't it be nice, yeah, wouldn't it be nice, really nice, to be given an extra week off this summer just because? Perhaps even this coming week? Well, if you work at the private equity firm Carlyle Group, that's exactly what's happening. We'll explain. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
If you happen to work at the private equity firm Carlisle Group, you are getting an extra week off next week. That's on top of a $750 well-being stipend. So for more on that and how the company is thinking about the wellness of its employees, let's find out from Bruce Larson. He is Chief Human Resources Officer over at Carlisle Group. He's on the phone. First of all, I want to get into what you guys are doing. Your world. Tell us how things have progressed over the past year and a half as you've dealt with the pandemic, you know, getting through it, starting to reopening, kind of where where are you right now in terms of your individual firm? So we're um, we're doing a great job of um, managing through things. Our firm has been having record level performances. Our people are working incredibly hard and are completely engaged. Um, but like everybody who's been going through this, it's been a journey. We've had um, challenges and things that have come up that we've tried to deal with, and some of those are around uh, our new well-being strategy that we have implemented a number of months ago. Um, but we're uh, we're hanging in there. Well, talk to us about this well-being strategy because it's really been very interesting, at least for me as a journalist uh, and for many others, to see how companies have opened up in terms of thinking about their employees different. Like, how how has that relationship between Carlisle, the employer, changed with Carlisle and its employees? Sure. So, look, I think a lot of this started um, a little bit before the pandemic where, um, you know, with new leadership at Carlisle and our new CEO, Kusang Lee, mm-hmm. trying to focus on how do we enhance um, an already very strong culture in the firm um, and really make our, our human capital strategies in line with all of our other strategies to deliver the right kind of commercial results. And so we were beginning to talk about a number of things. And then, of course, in March of last year, the world began to change and we all went out on uh, on a lockdown for what everybody thought would be two weeks and life would get back to normal. Right. Um, but of course, that didn't happen. Um, and so we began navigating our way through that. And one of the key pillars of our human capital strategy that we wanted to put in place before this all happened was sort of a very clear and transparent communication from leadership about what was going on in the world. And the pandemic kind of gave us no choice but to really accelerate that. And so we spent a lot of time just very openly and candidly and honestly communicating with our people about what was going on, even at times when we didn't really know what was going on, so that they knew management was watching things and being concerned about things. And as the, the pandemic progressed, um, we all individually got a sense for the increased stress levels that were going on um, because of your inability to separate from work and just <clears throat> no stop button. And it felt like people were living at work more than they were working from home. And so we started to focus on uh, a bunch of things around um, focusing on the well-being of our people because we have a strong belief that if our people are feeling better about themselves, both physically, mentally, emotionally, they'll be able to perform better right. as individuals and their teams will function better. And ultimately that will deliver better commercial results for the firm. And so we started to put together kind of a, a brief well-being approach, which has evolved into a much more formal strategy um, where we're trying to cover essentially the, the five pillars of well-being as, as we see them, which are physical emotional, social, environmental, and financial. Mm. And our initial thrust has really been on the physical and emotional uh, well-being of our people. And so we started kind of small by having, um, you know, very early on in the pandemic, uh, Zoom yoga classes and meditation classes and some, some things to just give people a break and started to 
to do some other things. And then we thought we've got to get more serious about this because this is, this is going to be part of our world going forward, and it's just smart business on our part. And so we established a well-being advisory committee across the firm that consists of employees from all different levels uh, across all of our businesses and all geographies to help advise us on the kinds of things that we think would be most impactful for our people. And one of those was, you know, this inability to separate and have any kind of disconnection from work. Right. And so we started We started last year by giving people a day off before the 4th of July and before Labor Day and before other holidays just to extend the break a little bit where everybody was off at the same time because it seemed to us like that was the only time you could really disconnect is if everybody was was off. And we got right. such positive feedback from that 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 evolved um, into us discussing as a leadership team earlier this year, you know, we should just close the place down for a week uh, globally and give everybody a week off where they can really disconnect. And we discussed amongst our leaders globally about the right time to do that and when made the most sense. And we ended up um, with uh, next week uh, in August Mm -hmm. being uh, the right week to do that. Their workers are getting an extra week off next week. They've also provided a $750 well-being stipend for uh, Carlisle workers. And Bruce, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is, and I think I do wonder how much of this stays with us in terms of permanent you know, planning for our workers at companies. Um, and I do wonder if there's a, you know, commercial aspect to why you're doing it, that it that it works, that it makes workers feel better, that it ultimately makes them feel more productive. What kind of research or science did you guys maybe tap into before setting your sights on some of these programs? Sure. Um, look, we've, we've looked at a bunch of different studies that indicate that if people are physically and emotionally healthier um, and well, better off, they are engaged more in their life generally. Uh, that's not, not just in work, but in their personal lives. And if your people are more energized and have the ability to focus and are feeling better about themselves, they're going to perform better. And when you've got a collection of better performing individuals, you're going to have better performing teams. Um, one of the measures that we look at to see how people are feeling about some of our efforts is in our recent employee engagement survey that closed in March of this year, and 92% of our people said that they were proud to work at Carlisle and would recommend it to a friend. And that, to me, says a lot about how they feel about their job. And when they're feeling great about their job, you know, this is a competitive, intense business. There are going to be moments where they've really got to push themselves, and they're going to be more willing to do that if they're feeling good about um, how the company is thinking about them as a person, not just a cog in a wheel that's, that's trying to crank out commerce. That's Bruce Larson, Chief Human Resources Officer over at Carlisle Group. Well, taking off time during the pandemic was impossible for ADM, at least for many of its workers, because it's a company that we know is integral to the global food chain. Coming up next, how Archer Daniels Midland, like many other multinationals, are doing a major rethink of how we work. We'll hear from one of the company's senior execs. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Well, a little over a month ago, I checked in with this 
incredible roundtable of senior executives from a broad swath of industries to talk about how work continues to shift because of the pandemic. And among them was Jennifer Weber. She's Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Archer Daniels Midland. As you know, ADM, an integral part of the global food chain, so they were crucial during the pandemic. One of the world's largest processors of agricultural commodities, founded over 100 years ago, and like many companies, taking a hard look at how we work through the pandemic and making shifts to reflect that. So let's bring in Jennifer, who joins us on the phone from Chicago. Jennifer, it is so great to have you back with us. How are you? I am doing well, Carol. It's nice to be back. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Your your contributions and your story uh, during that panel really resonated with me. You know, you actually had started at the company during the pandemic, correct? I did. I started in September of 2020, right right in the thick of it and, and in the heat of the pandemic. So talk to us about, you know, you came in and all of a sudden you guys were dealing with so much and, you know, issues that I think as employers, we didn't necessarily think a lot about potentially um, in terms of our employee base, but all of a sudden we had to, and we were talking about them uh, out in the open, whether it was mental wellness or juggling families and juggling work, uh, hybrid work. Tell us about the lessons that you guys have learned at ADM and things that are staying with you when it comes to how we work. Sure, absolutely. Well, I think I think that um, a, a couple of things. One thing is just from a from a background or a context standpoint at ADM, we have roughly forty thousand employees, and half of them, and they're this, we're very global. So twenty three percent are are in the United States. Um, and half of our workforce works in our manufacturing facilities. And so given the, the nature of the role that we play in the global food supply chain, we had a high percentage of our colleagues around the globe that um, needed to be in day in and day out. And, so, and then the balance of our employees are either, either in office settings or lab settings. We have in, innovation centers around the world. Uh, so, so throughout the pandemic, our, our, uh, our colleagues uh, kept that vital role we play in the global food supply chain moving along uh, at quite a bit of strain, right? Because as you mm-hmm. might imagine, we had um, a number of people who had to go out in quarantine. We monitored and tracked those things very, very closely. And, and I think we learned a lot about ourselves. So, so to your first question, w- what are some of the things that we've learned through this? Um, so one thing is, we I think we gained a lot of confidence as an organization on our ability to deliver on our commitments, deliver on our commitments to customers, uh, to our producers, to uh, our shareholders, um, and really make uh, adjustments. We had to make significant adjustments to the way we conducted our work, um, uh, particularly across our office settings, uh, and we had to do it in a way that we didn't miss a beat in terms of delivering. I think the other thing that we learned is there was a, a very healthy um, individual by individual, person by person, family by family reassessment of values, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say uh, a discussion about these things more openly. Um, I think for some people, there were deep personal impacts that were felt as a result of COVID. Right. Um, and it placed great strain on their mental health and well-being. Um, uh, and then, you know, we had, we had some colleagues who said, boy, has this been refreshing to reconnect with, with family, uh, hunker down with family, shelter in place, and, um, and, and do so together through, a, through a, an incredible period of uncertainty. 
And so, you know, and then I, and then I would say we, we as an employer stepped back from this and said, boy, you look at this time, it's been extremely isolating. Um, we've, had, uh, we've had parents of young children who have had to balance the demands of um, work commitments along with, you know, young children in the home who sometimes their school has mm-hmm. been interrupted. Right. So, you know, so we, we, we stepped back from all this and said, okay, as we think about um, the ecosystem of support we provide to our colleagues, how is this changing our thinking, right? Right. And, and, um, and it's, I think it's changed us in indelible and profound ways and, 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 and in many permanent ways that's been a healthy reset for many, many companies. That's Jennifer Weber. She's Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Archer Daniels Midland. And coming up, we're going to continue the conversation with her digging into working from home fairness. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So about a month and a half ago, I hosted a panel here at Bloomberg, and it was all about how work is shifting. Obviously, the pandemic has impacted so much, and companies in all walks of life, all industries, are figuring out what work looks like as workers come back to the office. And on that panel was Jennifer Weber, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Archer Daniels Midland. Here's more from our conversation, specifically about working out policies for workers who can work from home and those who cannot. We have discussions about this quite a bit. And it's and it's important that we do so, right? Because we uh, well, one thing one thing I, I I will say is we we call our employees colleagues for a reason, and that means that we are all colleagues. Whether you're in a manufacturing facility, you're in an office setting, you're in an innovation lab, you're a you know you're a you're a PhD in food science, or you are critical um, in one of our milling operations. Uh, we are all col- colleagues with each other and, and, and in this together. I think what I think what we what we stepped back and, and had to do is recognize that um, this that COVID um, was creating a high degree of uncertainty for all of us, um, and the needs varied, and how we meet the needs of our different colleagues varies depending upon where you sit in the organization. And so, you know, so we there were there were many times when we would pause and say, okay, given what we know now, what do we need to adapt? to more directly support our manufacturing colleagues, to more mm-hmm. directly support some of our office colleagues. And so just to just to give you some some examples of that, you know, we you know, throughout the course of this, our focus has been on keeping our colleagues safe and healthy, and that's both physically and mentally. And so one of the one of the challenges in our manufacturing environments is um, is communications and the ability, you know, it's not somebody sitting behind a computer where we can reach them with a lot of educational resources and, hey, here are, you know, EAP services that you're eligible for. It's just that's not, that's not their day-to-day life. And so we needed to come up with other ways to make sure that we were arming our, our leadership teams within our operations, that we were reaching our hourly colleagues to make sure that they had the information that they needed to know how to access various resources uh, to help them manage through this very, very uncertain time. So that would be one example. Um, as it relates to um, other things that can be done, I would say with continued advances in um, 
manufacturing technologies, Mm -hmm. um, but also um, just different ways of thinking about the scheduling of work um, uh, so that uh, um, that we're that, that in our in our um, goal of of you know delivering on you know delivering on the the commitments to our customers that we that we manage work in a way we schedule work in a way and we structure it in a way that allows people to you know to manage their work and life and so mm. you know we have had to take a step back in some of our manufacturing facilities and say you know okay how what do we do now and how do we help support these plant managers and maybe thinking about new and different ways of, of scheduling and the way work can get done. So I think there's going to continue to be more and more pressure on, on doing that mm-hmm. um, to follow through on a commitment that we have, again, and that's keeping everybody healthy and safe um, physically it's, and mentally. It sounds tricky. I, I, I got to say, and I was thinking yeah. about your job. I think this came up too that I had mentioned that we saw it after the crisis where the CFO position <laughs> really changed because they had to figure out how to keep companies financially alive in, you know, markets that had just, you know, seized up. And during the pandemic, you know, HR wasn't just about, wait, I got to change my filing or, you know, it became crucial to, to getting companies through it. How has that job changed forever? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, um, I would say that uh, w- one of the ways is uh, in, you know, the, the investment and in the development of our people leaders. Uh, that's, always been a, that's always been a really important focus, but I think this pandemic has placed additional strain and pressure on the role of the people leader to, um, to understand, to know how to be empathetic and to meet colleagues where they are given what they are going through, given the way in which they are internalizing this. And so I think that um, the role of HR in advising and coaching leaders and making sure that there are approaches to development in place that, um, that, that, that make sure that leaders understand how important that is. Um, that's taken on, I think, a new significance and meaning. I would say, you know, the, 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 from an HR standpoint, even the strategy around how do we make sure that this, um, I would say, convergence of both physical and mental health right. is something that we pay um, far closer attention to. You know, in the past, um, it may have been enough to say, are we offering the right benefits? Right. Um, are people, you know, uh, are people uh, taking care of themselves? Um, uh, do they are benefits competitive? Right but now, with with kind of emotional, mental health and well-being, and the role that we know that plays in the in the way in which people are feeling about their work and life, it's, right. it's critically important. And that was Jennifer Weber, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Archer Daniels Midland. Before we go, a Bloomberg Big Take this week on the former wife of Jeff Bezos, Mackenzie Scott, and how her money bombs are single-handedly reshaping America. Here's the story from Bloomberg News reporter Sophie Alexander. There were 786 gifts in total, and so that's uh, a lot of people to get in touch with. And she's quiet about it, right? Yeah, she... she 
basically just posts blog posts with a list of the organizations and says, look at all these organizations, pay attention to them, don't pay attention to me, here's much how much I spent, but she does not break it down um, for each gift. And so that's what we were trying to do to try to get a sense of what types of organizations she's giving the most money to. Uh, all right, and what's really interesting too is that some of these gifts, right, come to organizations and they actually maybe don't open up the email Tell us about that. Well, there, I mean, because she's so mysterious, because there's nothing really known about her team, she doesn't have a website, she doesn't have anything like that, it's really hard to find information about her. So there have been some real scammers, the New York Times reported, who are tricking some people into giving up banking information uh, that they ought not be. But some real recipients are also a little spooked because there's no logo, there's no address, there's no nothing. And these people that are working on her behalf there's not much information on them on the internet either and so they're turning to their lawyers and even uh, one lawyer said that it's probably a scam you shouldn't uh you know don't respond. open it don't open up the email right exactly and then it turns out to be real yes all right so tell us what are some of the trends that you found out in terms of size of gifts where they're going uh and the types of causes that she's going after It looks like the biggest gifts are going to colleges and universities, and she's largely giving to HBCUs, Hispanic-serving institutions, uh, two-year colleges, technical colleges, and community colleges, and they're getting, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. The biggest gift we saw was uh, 60 million, and that was to uh, give directly, which gives, um, which is in the philanthropy and grant-making infrastructure section. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Education is the big one. Um, that's where we found the most money going. And then philanthropy and grant making infrastructure is number two. Um, and those are places like United Way and really the backbone of the nonprofit industry. And last uh, big chunk was to social assistance groups. So that's like YMCA, Goodwill, et cetera. Remind me, her fortune, how big is it? It's about 60 billion, 58 okay. billion at last count. Okay, it's so far based on your tracking and our team's tracking, um, at least 4.3 billion given in 375 grants. That's that's what we think we know so far. Well, we know there's been 8.6 billion oh, okay. total, but because she's not breaking it down, we were only able to find that's right. gift amounts for the 4.3 billion. So we've covered about half of it, which is the most uh, of the accounting to date. Um, but a lot of organizations aren't sharing the amounts because they point to her and say, hey, uh, she's not sharing it, so we don't want to share it. We're going to take her lead. And others are saying, we're afraid that people are going to see these huge amounts and not want to give it to us anymore. All right. So Mackenzie Scott, so as you said, 8.6 billion in total gifts announced in just 12 months. That puts her where in terms of ranking of, uh, of philanthropy? Pretty much number one. I mean, wow. you think of the biggest mm-hmm. uh, billionaire philanthropists who are living today. You think of G- Gates and French Gates um, and the Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. And Mackenzie Scott has sort of blown them out of the water in the past 12 months. Um, you know, her giving in 12 months is larger than the Gates Foundation's and the Ford Foundation's annual grants combined. She's really shaking up the world. What's interesting, too, you guys found out that for many of these organizations, it's the largest gift that they've ever gotten. Oh, yeah. For, for the majority of people who responded to the survey, the vast majority. The other thing that's kind of cool about it, Sophie, is that she seems to follow the news, follow the trends, follow what's going on in the world, and then allocate a gift or money or some giving to kind of what's needed in the world at the time. 
That's right. It, it, there's not one thing that she's consistently been giving to except for philanthropy and grant making infrastructure. Um, aside from that, you know, with her July 2020 gifts, those were largely to racial equity groups and then to food banks later that year and more recently to Asian American Pacific and Islander groups as hate crimes across the country spiked. That's Bloomberg News reporter Sophie Alexander. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune in to our Bloomberg Business Week Daily Show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week, the magazine is available on newsstands now, also at Bloomberg.com and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. And you can catch my co-host Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.